Due to the nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of racism and murder. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. In 1993, Doreen Lawrence and her husband Neville step into a meeting room at the Athenaeum Hotel in London. It's filled with reporters. Cameras flash, shutters click, people shuffle. Doreen's nervous as she faces them. She really doesn't want to be here, but there's a reason she's doing this. The world needs to hear her message. And Nelson Mandela will help make sure people listen. Mr. Mandela appears and greets the couple. Then he turns and faces the cameras, standing by Doreen's side. He addresses the reporters, his tone firm and certain. As he speaks, Doreen can feel the energy shift. Her wait for justice might be over, because Mr. Mandela is on their side. He wants the same things they do. But she feels apprehension, too. As the camera flashes blind her, she must be realizing she's no longer just a mother and a bank worker. She's something she never imagined she'd be. The face of a movement. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we'll investigate the murder of Stephen Lawrence, a black teenager killed in London. What happens after his death reveals a series of failings from law enforcement that takes decades to unravel. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016... Adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation 
in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. If you're a regular listener, you'll know there's a lot of reasons a case can go cold. Lack of physical evidence, too few people around, too many people around, and sometimes scientific breakthroughs help us eventually crack the case. But what if the problem is less scientific and more sociological? Because it's not always the case itself that's mysterious. Sometimes it's the investigation. And Stephen Lawrence's murder made a lot of people wonder, what happens when the law fails us? It's April 22, 1993, 9 p.m. 40-year-old Doreen Lawrence is taking the bus home from a two-day academic trip. She gets dropped off at Greenwich University, where her husband Neville picks her up. The couple met in London after immigrating from Jamaica and tied the knot at a register's office. Now, more than 20 years later, life has gotten in the way, Neville's been out of work for three years, and it's taken a toll on the relationship. So the ride home to southeast London is mostly quiet, until Doreen asks how the kids are. They can always talk about their kids, Stephen, Stuart, and Georgina. Neville says Stuart and Georgina are home, but Stephen, the eldest, is with his friends. Doreen shrugs. He's 18. It's not unusual for him to be out a little late, as long as he's home by 10.30. But 10.30 rolls around, and Stephen still isn't home. It isn't like him. He's never gotten into trouble. He's a star student and an aspiring architect. Soon, there's a knock at the door. It's a few of their neighbors, and one of them has some alarming news. Earlier that night, he was at the bus stop on Wellhall Road when he saw a group of boys attack Stephen. Wellhall Road is in an area of London called Eltham, not too far from where the Lawrences live. It might be close by, but it's pretty different. A Guardian article that profiled the neighborhood says in the 1990s, the ideologies of the British National Party really took root there. The BNP is a political party. They're known for their policies barring those who aren't white against membership, a practice which was outlawed in 2010. They've historically been against immigration, too. For people of color, Eltham isn't necessarily a safe place to be at night. Doreen quickly calls the police. She's told that there haven't been any reports of an incident on Wellhall Road. So she and Neville drive to the bus stop to see for themselves. Stephen's not there. No one is. Doreen and Neville go to a nearby hospital. If their son really did get attacked, maybe he'd be there. Once inside, Neville sees one of Stephen's friends, Dwayne Brooks, standing outside a hospital room. Dwayne seems tense and won't make eye contact or speak not even when Doreen asks if he knows what happened. Before they can keep prodding, 
A doctor approaches and asks if Noreen and Neville are Stephen's parents. Noreen nods, and the doctor ushers them to a waiting room. Confused, Doreen asks what exactly is going on. The doctor doesn't give much information, just that they're working on her son. Doreen paces around the quiet room. She's probably wondering the same things we are, like, what does working on him mean? How badly is Stephen hurt? Then, after an excruciating wait, someone in scrubs enters the room and tells them, without ceremony, that Stephen is dead. Doreen shakes her head. She says, What do you mean he's died? Stephen isn't dead. The next several hours are a blur. The Lawrences are shown Stephen's body. He looks like he's sleeping, but he has a cut on his chin. There are two other wounds, too. The ones that killed him. It's eventually determined they're from a knife. When the Lawrences return home hours later, they have to tell the other children about their brother. Their son, Stuart, breaks down in tears. Relatives and neighbors hear the news and come to the house. They ask Doreen what happened. She doesn't know, but she's going to find out. At the nearby Plumstead Metropolitan Police Station, officers are trying to answer this question, too. They're interviewing Stephen's friend, Dwayne. He's still shaken, but he's able to give them his account. Dwayne explains that he and Stephen were on their way back home, but missed their bus once they got to Eltham. They got a little impatient waiting, so walked down the street to take a look around. That's when they heard someone yell a slur from the other side of the road. It was a group of white teens. Before Dwayne even knew what was happening, they rushed at him and Stephen. Dwayne ran back towards the bus stop, but the group surrounded Stephen. One of them pulled something from his belt, something metal from what Dwayne could see. The boy jammed it into Stephen. Dwayne was shouting. The attackers were laughing. And then it was over. They ran off. Stephen staggered to his feet, covered in blood, but then he collapsed. Dwayne had a hard time finding help, but he finally got an off-duty police patroller's attention. The officer called backup and eventually got Stephen to the hospital. After recounting this to the investigators, Duane is asked why the group would attack unprovoked. Surely Stephen must have done something. And is Duane sure he heard the boys shouting racial slurs? Duane's sure of his story, whether the officers believe him or not. After the story of Stephen's murder hits local news, the police receive several anonymous tips. The same names keep coming up. A group of local white teens. Neil Accort, Jamie Accort, David Norris, Gary Dobson, and Luke Knight. Callers say those five are responsible for killing Stephen Lawrence. But the police don't make any arrests. Senior investigating officer Ian Crampton doesn't want to jump the gun. If they arrest the group without hard evidence, they'll have to let them go. Then they'll know their suspects and they might tamper with evidence or threaten witnesses. 
Instead, a single officer surveils the suspects' homes, getting some photos of the teens disposing of garbage bags and taking clothes out to be laundered. But authorities don't seem to follow up further. Doreen hears rumors that the police have identified a group of suspects, but they haven't reached out about it. She feels like they're ignoring her. So on May 4th, she holds a press conference to publicly ask them for answers. Surrounded by microphones and cameras, Doreen decries the investigation, pushing the British authorities to explain why no arrests have been made. Word continues to spread about Stephen's death, and the Lawrence household is flooded with family, friends, and other sympathizers. Among them are activists who have worked with families of black murder victims and members of the anti-racist alliance, like journalist Mark Wadsworth, who has an idea. Nelson Mandela, acclaimed South African activist, is in London. Mark can get Doreen a meeting. But Doreen is conflicted. She can feel the political tension around the case growing. Uh, Let's stop for some history here because this kind of tension isn't exactly new. Only a decade or so earlier, there was an ongoing conflict between London's black youth and police, which led to riots in Afro-Caribbean neighborhoods like Brixton. Much of the tension stemmed from economic circumstances, The UK was in a slump, and there had been a surge in immigration. This meant competition for housing and jobs, so tensions between immigrants and Brits in the area ran high, and many felt like the police treatment towards the former was discriminatory. This feeling ultimately boiled over and contributed to the Brixton riots. Afterwards, a judge named Lord Scarman led a public investigation into what happened, His findings were laid out in a publication which later became known as the Scarman Report. The report acknowledged people of color were at a disadvantage in England, but it didn't think there was institutional racism in the police force. All this is to say, Doreen's not comfortable being at the center of a movement. Then again, she admires Nelson Mandela, and ultimately, she agrees to meet him. Two days after Doreen's first press conference, Nelson Mandela sits with the Lawrences at the Athenaeum Hotel. A large crowd of reporters is there, too. With their cameras on him, Mandela condemns the brutality of Stephen's murder and the lack of respect for black lives. And with that, Stephen's story goes national. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. 
Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. After Doreen Lawrence meets with Nelson Mandela... Nationwide pressure mounts for the London police to do something about Stephen Lawrence's murder. It seems to work. The very next day, authorities arrest the named suspects, a group of five young men. Dwayne Brooks is brought in to identify them from a lineup. It's probably difficult for him. He's still trying to process the violence he witnessed that night, still trying to make sense of it all. Even so... He's able to point out two of the suspects, Neil Accords and Luke Knight. They are officially charged with the murder of Stephen Lawrence. With this news, Duane allows himself to relax just for a moment. But then, the Crown Prosecution Service, or CPS, drops the charges. For some reason, they decide they can't rely on Duane's identification. When Doreen finds out she's furious. Her family's lawyers fight the decision, and the coroner's inquest is scheduled for that August. There's a lot of back and forth about this inquest. It gets rescheduled at least once, then it gets delayed further. Finally, around April 1994, CPS announces that, inquest aside, they won't be charging anyone with Stephen's murder. There isn't enough evidence meaning there's no one willing to prosecute any of the five suspects. It seems like the end of the road. But Doreen's lawyers say there's another option. The Lawrences can launch a private prosecution. It would be exactly like a criminal trial, the main difference being that the government wouldn't lead it. It's really risky. A private murder prosecution hasn't been done in England for 150 years. Most people don't bother to prosecute without the government's backing. And if it fails, it means Stephen's murderers will permanently go free. The UK's double jeopardy laws mean a person can't be prosecuted for the same crime twice. Doreen understands the risks. She also understands... This might be her only shot. So the Lawrences move forward with a private prosecution. This means they'll have to work more closely with the police to find the evidence they need. Speaking of the police, there have been some changes over there. A man named Bill Mellish has taken over as senior investigating officer. And he seems eager to push the case forward. Eventually, he orders surveillance to be set up inside the home of Gary Dobson, one of the teenage suspects. Gary often hosts his friends at his house. Now, a hidden camera is set up there. It doesn't take long for the boys to display appalling behavior. The camera captures four of the five suspects using violent, racist language. They speak of wanting to kill and torture people who aren't white. 
They play with a large knife and act out stabbing one another. When the Lawrence's legal team sees this video, they think this behavior could mean a motive for murder. And with Dwayne's eyewitness account, it might be enough to put them behind bars. In August 1995, the Lawrence's and their lawyers lay out this evidence before a judge who rules that three of the suspects will face trial. Neil Accord and Luke Knight, who Dwayne identified in the lineup, and Gary Dobson, whose home was recorded and who owned the knife captured on camera. The criminal trial begins three years after Stephen's murder in April 1996. Once again, a visibly nervous Dwayne Brooks has to tell his side of the story. After he's finished, the defense presents a report made by Detective Sergeant Crowley. Crowley was the officer who oversaw the police lineup when Dwayne identified the two suspects. It's clear now that Crowley's assessment is why those charges were dropped back then. According to the report, he thought Dwayne seemed uncertain and that he possibly learned what the suspects looked like beforehand. After hearing this, the judge sides with Crowley. He rules Dwayne's testimony as inadmissible. The air is sucked from the room. Without Dwayne, the prosecution's case falls apart. The video evidence on its own only proves that the suspects have racist and violent tendencies. It doesn't prove they acted on them. When the trial ends a few days later, all three suspects are acquitted. The news is too much for Doreen. For years, she's had to be the face of this story to push the case forward when no one else would. The press waits outside the courtroom for her to make a statement, but she can't do it. She leaves, and once in the privacy of her car, she breaks down. Now, remember that inquest I mentioned before, the one that kept getting delayed? Nearly a year later, in February 1997, it finally happens. In a lot of ways, this feels pointless. There's been a whole trial already, so everyone knows Stephen was murdered. And remember, double jeopardy laws mean those three suspects who were acquitted can't be tried again. Maybe that's why the Lawrence's legal team decides to try a different tactic. When the police submit their evidence, the Lawrence's lawyers question the officers on what went wrong in the investigation. The officers aren't happy about this. Even senior investigating officer Bill Mellish feels betrayed. But it seems the lawyers want to get something on the record that states how the Metropolitan Police failed Stephen. When the verdict is read, it states that Stephen was unlawfully killed in an unprompted attack. The inquest says he bled out after being stabbed with a knife. It's not anything we don't already know. And to Doreen, it feels like a message. She says, quote, The judicial system made a clear statement to the black community that their lives are worth nothing. She's not alone in her frustration. The Daily Mail, a British tabloid, prints the five suspects' faces on their front page with the headline, Murderers. 
the paper claims unequivocally that these five young men killed Stephen Lawrence. And if the paper is wrong, then the young men are welcome to sue. This brazen claim by the Daily Mail stokes the flames of public unrest. They are giving voice to what so many Londoners are thinking, that this group of young men are responsible, whether or not it's been proven in court. As public pressure and pressure from Doreen and her team mounts, the government announces an inquiry to investigate what went wrong. They also want to determine a larger issue if there's institutional racism in the Metro PD. Heading the investigation is Sir William McPherson. Many celebrate the choice. McPherson is a retired high court judge and decorated soldier. Doreen is disappointed. She's learned that McPherson has a record of ruling against asylum seekers. She worries about how he'll handle a case dealing with discrimination. Starting in March 1998, McPherson and his counsel hear testimony and review evidence for 59 days. 88 total witnesses appear, including the Lawrences, Dwayne Brooks, numerous police officers, and the five suspects. A large crowd of protesters gather outside these proceedings, and when they see the suspects, the scene erupts into chaos. The police spray protesters with tear gas. The place rumbles with righteous fury. Proceedings are halted. Doreen and Neville go to calm the crowd. As they stand before the protesters, Doreen says she shares their anger. She feels it even more deeply. But she doesn't want them to disrupt the inquiry. She wants them to respect her and the process in their pursuit of justice. The inquiry resumes. The whole thing takes nearly a year. McPherson and his counsel speak with 100 individuals and organizations about handling racially motivated crimes. But finally, in early 1999, McPherson's team reaches a conclusion. In 1999, the McPherson Report, as it's now known, is released. It's a 389-page document that is considered a seminal work in modern policing. It contributes to the dialogue around discrimination in the field and recommended changes to both law and police procedure. Its conclusion? Stephen's case was severely hampered by professional incompetence and institutional racism. Here are the major offenses. First, critical first aid was not given to Stephen. Remember how on the night of Stephen's attack, Dwayne flagged down an off-duty police officer? Well, more officers arrived on the scene soon after, and they were slow to act. Instead of helping Stephen, who lay bleeding on the ground, Officers questioned Duane as though he were a suspect. Second, the police were slow to act on tips, even when many of them named the same five people as suspects. Now, here's where we have to jump around a little to give you the full picture. Remember, 
Ian Crampton was the senior investigating officer who didn't want to jump the gun on an arrest. Crampton was only in that role for a few days after Stephen died. The following week, a new officer took over, and that officer inadvertently admitted that he was confused about his powers of arrest. He thought he had to have firm evidence. Finally, a surveillance team was scheduled to stake out the suspect's homes after one of the young men was observed taking out his garbage and laundry. But that full surveillance team didn't turn their focus to the Lawrence case until April 27th, five days after Stephen was killed, because they were booked on another assignment, watching a young black man who was suspected of robbery. The delay could have been costly, The suspects might have been disposing of evidence. There are mixed responses to the report. As for Doreen, on the one hand, she feels validated that someone like McPherson could see the case was mishandled. Plus, it's a notable departure from the famous report that preceded it, the Scarman Report. Remember, it wouldn't acknowledge that there was institutional racism in the police after the 1980s Brixton riots. Now, here's McPherson saying there is. But Doreen also doesn't think McPherson goes far enough in his condemnation. And even though the report proposes some reforms, she doubts it'll lead to anything meaningful in regards to her son's case. On top of these bittersweet feelings, Doreen's personal life is rocky. Her and Neville's marriage suffered for years, even before their son's death. And since Stephen died, Doreen feels like she's had to be the strong one. She hasn't been given space to grieve. Even though they always try to show a united front in public, the strain eventually becomes too much. In July of 1999, Doreen and Neville divorce. For the next several years, Doreen focuses her time on the Stephen Lawrence Charitable Trust. One of its missions is to give opportunities to disadvantaged youths, especially those interested in architecture like Stephen was. But that doesn't mean she's done with her son's case. Not yet. Because, as it turns out, both the Metropolitan Police and Parliament move forward with many of the recommendations outlined in the McPherson Report. The most pivotal change being, in 2005, the UK amends its double jeopardy law to allow for new and compelling evidence. That means an acquittal isn't the end of the road anymore. Now, with the possibility of retrial on the table, cold cases are being re-examined. That's when someone new enters the picture. It's 2006, and Detective Clive Driscoll wants a crack at Stephen's case. Clive is an old-school kind of investigator. He calls everyone sir or ma'am and grew up watching Dixon of Doc Green, a series that ran from the mid-1950s to the mid-70s. It's about an upstanding officer who cared for his community. Clive dreamed of being a police officer ever since he was a kid. Now that he is one, he loves it. But when the McPherson report came out, 
he felt ashamed, mostly because he agrees with it. So when the opportunity arises for a new detective to take over the Stephen Lawrence case, Clive jumps on it. His higher-ups warn him that the Lawrences, especially Doreen, are difficult to work with. They say the family hates the police and probably won't cooperate. Doreen didn't even let the original investigator see Stephen's school records. But Clive can see her side of things. If he were a grieving mother still awaiting justice, he'd hate the police too. To him, what his colleagues say only means he has to be extra thorough. Which is going to be easier said than done. There are 540 boxes of files on the Stephen Lawrence case. And when he checks Holmes, he sees it's a mess. If you recall from our earlier episode on the disappearance of Vicki Hamilton, Holmes is a database that UK police use to maintain large cases. It helps them store and organize information. Holmes was in use back in 1993 when Stephen was killed, but Clive sees that original investigators were sloppy about logging their files. Some items are labeled incorrectly, and some information is missing entirely. It's nearly unusable. Clive assembles a team to go through each of the 540 boxes by hand and manually enter and clean up everything in the system. In one of those boxes, Clive finds a revelatory document, a report that clearly states Doreen did give the original investigators access to Stephen's school records. In fact, the more he reads, the more he sees how cooperative Doreen has been. Anytime the police requested something from her, she gave it to them. Clive realizes something. He can't take his colleague's word on anything regarding this case. He needs to start from scratch. He spends countless hours going through the files and often takes his reading to Well Hall Road, the site of Stephen's murder. He wants to immerse himself as much as possible. Eventually, he even enlists his team to reenact Stephen's murder. It might sound grim, but he wants to know if police have been looking at the attack all wrong. It turns out, they have. All the reports describe the attack as brief. In the early days of the investigation, when police were slow to arrest the suspects, they spent their time interviewing witnesses. No one in the immediate area seemed to see anything, so officers figured the attack happened quickly. But when Clive and his team reenact the incident, they realized the whole thing would have taken anywhere from 30 to 60 seconds. Well, that might not sound like a lot of time, but it probably seemed like an eternity to Stephen. And it's not short enough for the perpetrator to avoid leaving any evidence behind. I'm talking clothing fibers, DNA, or other samples that the original investigators may not have looked for if they thought the contact was brief. With that in mind, Clive has the forensics evidence re-examined. He convinces his higher-ups to use a private company to look into this, reasoning that fresh eyes might find something new. This private team carefully examines some of the old evidence, like Stephen's clothing and the suspects. 
when they do, they find fibers from Stephen's shirt on two of the suspect's clothes, Gary Dobson and David Norris. When Clive hears the news, he knows this is just the beginning. He's been putting off meeting Doreen until he had good news. Now he does. They meet at an office in New Scotland Yard. Clive tells her what he's found and that he's committed to seeking justice. All Doreen sees is another cop making empty promises. She says she'll believe it when convictions are made. After the meeting, Clive gets back to it. He works diligently for weeks, then months, then years. As time marches on, he keeps communicating with Doreen and eventually earns her trust. She feels like he actually listens to her. He treats her like a person, not a nuisance. In 2008, she invites Clive to attend a service for the 15th anniversary of Stephen's death. The memorial takes place on April 22, 2008. While there, as if by divine fate, Clive gets a call. He steps outside to take it. A member of the forensics team is on the line. They tell him they found something. Stephen's blood on Gary Dobson's jacket. Clive nearly drops his phone. He turns around and looks into the church at the large portrait of Stephen at the front. He smiles. Despite the exciting news, Clive doesn't want to rush anything. He wants to make sure their case is bulletproof. David Norris is the easy part of all this. Remember, some of Stephen's clothing fibers are found on David Norris's clothes. David was never tried, so it won't be hard to build a case against him. In Clive's opinion, this evidence would have been enough to put David away back in 1993 if the police had looked for it. But Gary Dobson was acquitted before, so as per the new law, any evidence they bring against him now must be both new and compelling. They test Stephen's blood over and over again to prove without a doubt that it's his. The process of building a foolproof case takes about another two years. Finally, in 2010, Clive calls a meeting with the Lawrences and their team. He tells them the big news. They're going to charge Dobson and Norris. There is a moment of celebration, but then Doreen has some hard questions. She's been fighting for nearly 20 years. Why has it taken so long? Why didn't anyone else look at the evidence this closely? Clive doesn't have an answer for her. All he can do is help them move forward. In 2011, Gary Dobson and David Norris, both now in their mid-30s, stand trial for the murder of Stephen Lawrence. In January 2012, the court finds them guilty. Dobson is sentenced to a minimum of 15 years, Norris a minimum of 14. Outside the courtroom, Doreen embraces Clive. He says it's just the beginning. He has leads on at least one other suspect. 
He isn't allowed to say who it is. But not long after, higher-ups in the Met start scaling back the case. When Clive asks why, the response he gets is something along the lines of, You've done your job. Let's count that as a win and call it a day. Then, in 2013, Clive is told it's time to retire. He offers to stay on for longer or to help with the transition when new officers take over Stephen's case. But mostly what he hears is radio silence. Then, in 2018, authorities say they've run out of leads. Two years later, they announce they're shutting down the case. It's a confusing decision, and we don't know why the police went this way, especially since the case seemed to have so much momentum. It means Stephen Lawrence's murder isn't history. It's likely that some of his killers are still free, which means that the fight isn't over. Still, we can't forget the good that came out of all this horror. The Lawrence's efforts resulted in the McPherson Report, it ultimately reformed police procedure in the UK and changed the way complaints are handled. Not to mention, the Double Jeopardy Law Amendment helped bring other criminals to justice. As for Doreen, she continues her work in Stephen's name and is even given an honorary title and a seat in the House of Lords for her efforts. Eventually, she writes a memoir. In it, she says... I take comfort from the fact that Stephen's name is synonymous with positive change and is linked everywhere with improving race relations. It is as though he now belongs to everybody and not just to his family. Every year on April 22nd, Stephen is remembered across the UK. Stephen Lawrence Day serves as a reminder to keep fighting for a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next time with another cold case. For more information on the murder of Stephen Lawrence, amongst the many sources we used, we found the BBC One documentary, Stephen, The Murder That Changed a Nation, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Joseph Bricker, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Kate Murdoch, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. I'm Carter Roy. <laughs>